We've been working through a, a series called Living in Light of the Resurrection, which has been an attempt to talk about the earthquake of the resurrection in the world and what that meant in terms of its aftershocks in the human heart. So what did the resurrection actually produce in the human heart that, um, that literally changes who we are as people? And we've looked at three things, and we're going to look at the last one again tonight. We've looked at uh, this aftershock of peace, the aftershock of hope, and then most recently last week at the aftershock of joy. Now, now let me say uh, a couple of things about this. One is that one of the main tenets of the Christian faith is that those who know Jesus and those who walk with him are being restored into the image of true humanity. That is, uh, Christianity is the most humanistic of all uh, thought worlds or, or systems, if you will. Um, meaning that as we are reunited with God who made us, that we become like we were always meant to be. That's what I mean by humanistic, that we become the people that we were created to be. So my uh, suggestion to you is that for the, the people who indwell or who experience, who know hope, who know peace, and who know joy, all of these rooted in the work of God in Christ are the people that are living fully the life that we were designed to live. So let me ask you a question with that in mind. Would people describe you as a generous person? You might think, what does this have to do with, with hope and with peace and with joy? We'll, we'll unpack that here in a moment. Would people describe you as somebody who's generous? Now, I know many of you in this room don't probably have a lot uh, of extra savings to your name. Um, some of you might. The, the question, though, that I, that I want you to just consider in your own heart is, do, would people describe you as somebody who's generous? Now, why would that, why would that be something that's at all important or valuable? Um, one main reason, and that is that, uh, that God himself is generous and that the original design for human beings was to image who God is to the world around us. And that one of the ways that we do that most effectively is by being generous with the things that God has entrusted to us. That our generosity actually mirrors who God is in a way that's perhaps more, uh, uh, more essential and central than anything else that we can do in our lives. So just hit, hang on to that question for, for just a minute. We're going to jump into 2 Corinthians 8. Let me just set the context. What Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 8 is he's transitioning in his letter to, to Corinth to tell the Corinthian church that he wants them to give, to be generous to the poor believers in Jerusalem. A, a predominantly Gentile church in Corinth, a little bit more well-endowed uh, financially than the, the saints that were in Jerusalem. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to give to the church in Jerusalem. It's not just what he's saying. He's not just saying, I want you to. He's actually commanding them to in chapters 8 and 9 of this letter. Um, and in commanding them to do that, he's, he's saying to them this, this, this true statement about what it means to follow Jesus. He's saying, if you say that you've, that you've met the risen Christ and you've been brought into his family, and yet you turn a blind eye to the needs of your brothers and sisters in this Christian family, then your profession is not lived out by your action. And therefore, there is reason for you to question whether your profession is genuinely true. What Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is that your, ability, your, your desire and then follow through to actually give to the church in Jerusalem 
is a test of your faith. Now, a, a test of faith is not meant to try to show the, the, the lack of genuineness about our faith. It's meant to actually provide an opportunity for the genuineness of faith to be brought to bear in the world. So um, I just want to make clear that, that Paul's call here on the Corinthian church is a call to say, let's see that this is real. There's been a kind of sordid past between Paul and the church in Corinth. Most recently, Titus had gone back and the church had repented and they'd been restored to fellowship with one another and to fellowship with Paul. And Paul, in a sense, is saying in verse 6, he says to Titus, he says, so we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. In other words, the beginning of his, the, the start of what Titus had done was to restore you now to fellowship. The completion of this is to see you're now becoming a conduit of the grace of God into the lives of others. So, he pulls out of his back pocket this, this great example of the Macedonian church. And that's where I want to focus um, in thinking about what does it mean for us to be a church filled with joy? Filled with joy. What would our mission to the world actually look like and to one another? So Paul pulls out this trump card of the Macedonian church and he holds up the Macedonian church to the Corinthians as an example for them to follow. And what does he say in verse 1? He says, you know, brothers, um, uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. He says these are churches that have, been, have experienced this power and wonder of God's grace in their lives. And he's about to tell them how he knows. But let me just stop and say, um, many of you who are here tonight weren't here last week. And we talked about joy. And we talked about the nature of joy as simply the, the response to what God has done in our lives. We looked at Psalm 126 a little bit. God has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us. Therefore, we are glad. I asked Chloe this morning, we were in the car. I was down in Connecticut this morning at Bishop Thad's church because he was out of town. And we just got back at 420 um, this afternoon. So it's been a long day already. But I asked Chloe as I was going down, I was kind of bouncing some of these ideas off of her. I said, Chloe, so, so what is joy? How would you define joy? And she, and she just kind of thought for a minute and then she goes, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that was actually really profound. Um, that is, in essence, the, the, the reality of joy is this overflow of praise and thanksgiving to God for what he's done in our lives. And we talked last week about secondary uh, circumstances versus primary circumstances. We talked about our secondary circumstances kind of going up and down and all over the place. We suffer. We have uh, these kind of exuberant moments, but they're, they're sort of all up and down all the time and how for us oftentimes those secondary things become primary and the primary thing which is actually what God has done for each one of us in Jesus on the cross becomes secondary so our identity gets all confused and our joy is actually taken away so we see that primary the reason I bring all of that up again is because we see that lived out here in the Macedonian church in verse 2 Paul says about them for in a severe test of affliction now, I don't wish that upon any of us, but that was the situation they were in. He writes, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed to a wealth of generosity. So they were in a situation of a severe affliction. They were in a situation of extreme poverty. This is not a church with a big budget and with a lot of people around. Now, the Macedonian church, he's talking about many different churches, including the church in Thessalonica and in Philippi. We have letters to those churches preserved for us in the biblical witness. But he's saying that these churches were in extreme poverty. Now, that's their secondary circumstance. 
For many of us, if we were living in extreme poverty, we'd find very little reason to be happy. We'd find much reason to be griping and complaining and moaning and, um, and feeling sorry for ourselves, probably. Here's a church that finds itself in a very difficult secondary circumstance of extreme poverty. And what does Paul say about them? Their abundance of joy. So here's a, a great exhibit A from what, a little bit of what we talked about in terms of joy last week. That this is a community of people. This is a church, not powerful by the world standards. Um, and we've got to remember back then, this wasn't, it wasn't kind of Christendom. The, the, the church was a minority group being persecuted. This was a, a little renegade group of people following Jesus who were working hard probably to get their next meal for the day and genuinely trusting in God to provide their daily bread. And Paul says this church had an abundance of joy. So the pattern is grace, God at work in your life. God has done great things for you, and we are glad. Grace then leads to joy, this abundance of joy, this yeah kind of response, not to necessarily the difficult circumstances. I know many of us in this room have walked through many different difficult circumstances in life over the last year. Not so much in those difficult circumstances. You're not yahing those, but you're, you're saying yeah to the things that God has done in his son Jesus, which actually mean everything for who you are as a human being. They define your identity and they give you a reason to rejoice and to be glad in all circumstances because of what God has done. So we see them going from grace, what God has done in Christ in bringing them into his family to an abundance of joy, this response to God's work in their lives. And then this joy leads to what? Out of their extreme poverty and their abundance of joy overflows. You get this image of a fountain just bubbling up and overflowing into a wealth of generosity. What does a joy-filled mission look like? in the world? What does a joy-filled community look like in the world? It looks like a generous people. A people whose lives are literally filled with generosity because of the grace of God at work in them. And this is the trump card that Paul pulls out of his pocket and puts before the Corinthian church, a more wealthy, more established church in his day. And I want to suggest to you that that this is the trump card that needs to be pulled out and put in front of the American church in the 21st century as well. This kind of generosity of joy that flows out of the Macedonians. Now, how, how, how did they give? If you look in, in the text, it says, um, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave according to what they had, but then Paul says they actually gave beyond what they had. That is, they gave sacrificially. They gave sacrificially. And then the next thing he says, um, of their own free will. They weren't coerced into giving to the saints in Jerusalem. Nobody had to give them a really slick sales pitch um, to, to help to kind of just ease their wallet a little bit um, to get them into the situation where they were actually going to be generous. But they gave of their own free will. And in fact, not only did they give sacrificially and voluntarily, but they gave eagerly. They gave joyfully. They gave with a, a, an earnest desire to be a part of this kind of movement in, in the church back then. As it says in, in uh, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, can you just imagine the Macedonian church for a second? Probably some fishermen. You know, not, not Maybe one, one, one week they had a really good catch, and so they were able to sell a few extra fish and 
put a few coins under the pillow. Kids running around without proper clothing, maybe. Um, perhaps you've been to a place of extreme poverty in the world. Just kind of fill in that picture. Now, that's the, that's the picture that Paul's saying about the Macedonian church. Okay, that, that's their life. And then all of a sudden, they hear about this need of the church in Jerusalem, the, the saints in Jerusalem, of, of their extreme poverty as well. And you might think that certainly for, from a middle-class perspective, this might be the general response, that instead of kind of going over to kind of the, the street corner where Paul was going to talk about this need and actually talk about their, their, uh, the call to be a part of this work, that they might have come up with a pretty good excuse to go fishing again or to do something else, or just to kind of hide. But it says instead, actually, that out of this poverty, because of the joy through the grace of God in their lives, this joy, this abundance of joy in who God is and what he has done for them, that they begged earnestly. They said, Paul, can we please have a part? Can we have a part to play in this work of giving to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that we don't even know, that we've never even met? Please, can we be a part of this? They begged earnestly. And then they went into their little one-room house and, and, and lifted up the, the, the cardboard on which they were sleeping and, and took out the extra two coins that they had earned four months ago when, that, when the, 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 the catch was really good. And they brought them to Paul. And they said, here, take this. And they didn't do it grudgingly. They didn't do it kind of, man, I just... There's probably a lot of better things that I can do with this, but I'm going to give it to you because I think it's the right thing to do. But they did it as, uh, you know, we're a church under Rwanda, and oftentimes the churches in Africa, when they take an offering, you've seen them do this before, they'll they'll dance down the aisle to bring their gifts before the Lord. And you get that picture of the Macedonian church just kind of jubilantly and joyfully coming to the Apostle Paul and dropping their, their couple of extra coins into the bag and hearing them drop in the bottom and rejoicing all the way back home, even though those coins wouldn't be under the cardboard anymore. This is the picture of a joy-filled church that Paul gives. He's holding it up to the Corinthians, but I suggest he needs to hold it up to us as well in our world. In verse 5, he says, And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord, and then also to us. That's a really important phrase. How in the world could a church like that, could people like that do what they just did? And Paul says it's because they didn't own themselves anymore. They gave themselves to the Lord. This God who had done a great thing in their lives, who had literally turned their lives upside down, they gave their life back. And everything that they had with it, they gave over to him. And then they entrusted themselves to this God, this God who owns everything that you see and that I see. They entrusted themselves and they said, you know what? We can trust God for our daily bread. They were probably praying the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And they said, well, to be a part of this work of mission, this this work of love to the church in Jerusalem, we want to be a part of that. And even though that means we may not know what we're going to get for the next day, we trust that our God is big enough and strong enough and he's loving enough that he can give us those things as we need them. So they were liberated to go and, and to give. And then they also, in doing so, showed that they prioritized God above the treasures of this world. Now, I realize in talking about, in a sense, generosity and money that I'm actually approaching sacred ground in American culture. Money is the thing that we all cling to for significance, for status, for security, for luxury, for pleasure. 
Money is the god of our age. It's the god of our capitalistic market-driven economy. The Dow Jones and the NASDAQ are, are, are um, to stock terms in our culture. And it's oftentimes true that instead of our primary identity in Jesus defining who we are every day as human beings, that those indexes up and down can affect the heart of a person more significantly than what God has done. So in talking about the generosity of joy, I recognize that we're sort of coming up against one of the sacred idols of our age, which is money. And it's not just of our age. Jesus had a lot to say about money. Here's the way I would paraphrase verse 2 for the 21st century American church. Bear with me because it's kind of harsh, just to warn you. Verse 2 reads, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is the way my verse 2 reads. For in a severe test of affluence, their meager joy and their excessive wealth trickled over into a few tax-deductible donations. The American church on average, as statistics would tell us, gives every, a Christian on average gives about 3 to 4% of their annual income away each year. That percentage, by some accounts, has been going down, um, even with an economic upturn in the 90s. And um, I think that it shows something about the nature of the church that we uh, live in, the, 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 the moment of time that we inhabit uh, as Christians. And it's something that, that um, is not new under the sun. William Law wrote a book in the early 18th century in England called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And listen what he said about the way his um, contemporaries spent their money. He said, now this is truly the case of riches spent upon ourselves in vain and needless expense in trying to use them where they have, they have no real use, nor we any real want. We only use them to our great hurt in creating unreasonable desires, in nourishing ill tempers, in indulging our passions and supporting a worldly vain turn of mind so that money thus spent is not merely wasted or lost, but it is spent to bad purposes and miserable effects to the corruption and disorder of our hearts and to the making us less able to live up to the sublime doctrines of the gospel. It is but like keeping money from the poor to buy poison for ourselves. Pretty challenging, challenging words. In his day, instead of a generous joy, a generosity of joy that overflowed out of the heart of the people of the church, he saw instead a clenched fist greed and selfishness and eagerness for luxury at the expense of the relief of the needs of others. In other words, he saw a church that was lost, a church that had lost its way, um, a church that hadn't given itself over to the Lord, a church that didn't trust in the Lord to provide, and a church that treasured the wrong things. This is what I'm calling, in many ways, the Macedonian rebuke to the church today. But let me be clear uh, as I bring this to a close that the Macedonian rebuke of a church that is abundant in joy in response to the grace of God is not a, a heavy-handed rebuke to each one of us to say, you better give more money away so that you can be more like Jesus. 
Because if that was the rationale, if that was the way that this worked, it would be absolutely and utterly ineffective. The rebuke of the Macedonian church to all of us today is a rebuke about grace. It's a rebuke about the nature of the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And ultimately, it's a rebuke about joy. In other words, the, the, the path to generosity can only go through the grace of God and the joy that that produces in the human heart. So we don't address our lack of generosity, our struggle with greed and idolatry by hoarding things to ourselves, by simply, um, by simply saying to ourselves, well, I'm just going to go out and to give more. But we address that, that deep problem in the church in America today and perhaps in our own hearts today by turning back again to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. By looking once again at the table, as we'll come to celebrate in a few minutes, of all that God has done for us in giving himself to us in his son. By remembering, and I would put this to you to memorize 2 Corinthians 8-9, which Paul, Paul speaks about to the church in Corinth as he's given them the, the, the example of the Macedonian church. He then says, well, let me show you the example of Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes... He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The path to generosity is only through the grace of God in Christ Jesus, which evokes in the people of God an exuberant and abundant joy. And then it's out of that joy that we are then free now to be conduits of the grace of God into the world of need around us. A church of joy won't just be a church that's smiling all the time and where everything looks good and feels good. A church of joy will be a church that's a place where the grace of God is alive and well and proclaimed and celebrated and then multiplied through the people of God into acts of generosity into the world around us. That's the joy-filled mission that we've been called on, one of exuberant and abundant generosity rooted in the grace of God in Christ. And that's the rebuke that a little, poor, extremely poor church in the Greco-Roman world in the first century brings to the church in the United States of America today, which is a gracious and loving rebuke to call us back to the joy that we have in the God who has raised us with Christ and adopted us into his family. There is no greater riches, there is no greater joy than that for us. I pray that we would know that joy deep within our hearts and that then as a result, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, we could manifest that joy to the world around us by open-handedness and generosity to the people in need. Amen.